Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 21. Can Behavioral Economics Solve Your Company's Healthcare Problems? Featuring Dr. Derek Yock from the Vitality Institute. Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Engagers. A recent study by the Vitality Institute found that the U.S. lags behind other countries in improving disease prevention and life expectancy. What's America's weak link? It's the workplace, according to the study. But the workplace is also one of the easiest to strengthen, and it provides a unique platform for engaging people to adopt healthier habits. In particular, the still-evolving field of behavioral economics provides opportunities for employers to use evidence-based strategies to improve the health of their workforce. Today we're going to discuss the reasons for this health care gap and what your company can do to engage your workforce for better health and productivity. I'm joined by Dr. Derek Yock from the Vitality Institute. Dr. Yock has focused his career on advancing global health. He's Senior Vice President of the Vitality Group, where he heads the Institute. Previously, Dr. Yock was Senior Vice President for Global Health and Agriculture Policy at PepsiCo. He's headed global health at the Rockefeller Foundation. He was Professor of Global Health at Yale, and he is the former executive director for non-communicable diseases and mental health with the World Health Organization. Dr. Derek Yock, welcome to Workforce Health Engagement. Great to be with you. Dr. Yock, can you tell us a little bit about the Vitality Institute? It's a, it's a kind of a different animal compared to what a lot of people might know about. Yes. Um, well, the Vitality Institute was um, born out of Discovery Holdings, a South African uh, life, health, and mixed financial services company. Uh, which uh, about 15 years ago was formed when uh, the then CEO felt that they needed to breathe real life and impact into the way life and health insurance was practiced. And the basic issue that he wanted to highlight was how one could promote better health and longevity, as well as prevent disease within insurance products um, and move away from what had been a kind of static approach to financing health or financing life insurance to activating members uh, to take better control and be supported in living longer and healthier lives. They found through empirical evidence um, carried out on over a million people in South Africa initially that when they got it right, uh, people in fact showed that with increased engagement in gyms and fitness activities, for example, hospitalization rates started declining Uh, the need for medication started reducing, uh, leading overall to a reduction on the costing structure of healthcare. And the benefit of that got shared with the member Um, from that humble South African beginning, which now they have uh, three, four million members on. It's now expanded and we're now active in the UK, a number of Asian countries uh, launching across Europe and of course in the US. So Vitality Institute is a program focused on health promotion and disease prevention, originally 
available only through the South Africa life insurance company Discovery Limited, but now you're available in other countries as well through other providers. That's, that's correct. The actual institute itself um, is, it was set up um, two years ago to accelerate both having better knowledge about what works and what doesn't work to promote health, particularly among adult, adults, um, whether they're in the workplace or not. But it was also set up um, to engage with a wide range of government, NGO, other corporates to raise the profile of prevention and health promotion in a world where healthcare and treatment often dominated debates about health. How would you contrast what Vitality does with wellness programs that are pretty common, at least in the United States? I think the first thing is one of terminology. Um, I've always uh, regarded the word wellness as leading to greater confusion. Uh, wellness in some parts of the world is equated with mud therapy and foot reflexology, um, <laughs> whereas uh, I prefer to focus on true programs to enhance well-being, where I understand that well-being refers to reducing risks that have impacts on people's survival, on the quality of the life, on their productivity at work, um, or maybe related to trying to promote better adherence and have both a focus on physical health and mental health in an integrated way. So our programs uh, try to address material risks that if reduced will improve the quality of life of people as well as their longevity, um, as opposed to what may be very nice things to do that may in fact even make some people feel better in the short run, but do nothing to the actual quality of their lives. Your website describes you as being an action-oriented research organization. So action-oriented, but evidence-based. And the buzzword, at least in the U.S., that I know you guys are working hard to apply is behavioral economics. Um, you're both expanding and building on existing research in the area of, of behavioral economics. Is that right? Yes. Um, and that's something from the beginning of um, the Vitality Program in South Africa uh, has been at the core of some of the, the insights. Um, it was um, way back then, probably over a decade ago, that they started drawing upon the work of Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner who got the Nobel Prize for Behavioral Economics. Mm -hmm. And his key insight is, is not a very complicated insight. It's really that we all tend to uh, be frail human beings. We tend to focus and favor the short term over the long term, even if that means acting in our worst long-term interests. And the question is, how do we overcome that inherent tendencies to be more short-term focused, whether it's staying in bed rather than going to the gym or whether it's taking uh, the sweetest uh, option at a buffet as opposed to the healthiest option? Um, there's a similar set of mental and behavioral responses and approaches to make the healthier choice the easier choice. And the way we do it is by using financial incentives to help people overcome that short-term tendency, to design programs that make the default option the best and the healthiest option, and to give people the tools to be able to um, live their lives where they are less confronted with unhealthy choices than healthy choices. So better access to gyms, better access to healthy foods, removing any barrier to getting your flu vaccine, thinking systematically about what is blocking people doing the healthy choice and trying to put in place means of making that easier. 
that's all part of the growth of behavioral economics. Hmm. Now, one thing I've struggled with, and I know you've commented as well on this, is that at least for business leaders who are interested in applying the principles of behavioral economics, there's not much information that's available. There's a lot of research, but it's not in, a, in, in let's say, a book-length form or any other mode of information that would be easily accessible to corporate leaders. Is that an accurate description? I think you're right. I mean, the, the literature on behavioral economics is pretty dense. If you try and read Kahneman's book, uh, Think Fast, Think Slow, it certainly took me four reads to try and absorb maybe 50%. <laughs> it was certainly worth it. But it's incredibly dense writing, very academic, very theoretically based. Um, whereas, in fact, at its heart, some of the concepts are simple. I think that some elements have been simplified. People like uh, Brian Wansink in his little book called Mindless Eating gives very practical examples about how to design your cafeteria to promote uh, uh, eating that actually has better health outcomes. Uh, there are others, but it has never been put together. And I think what you're saying is that uh, anybody listening, there's a huge niche out there for somebody to create a simple, how do I, in the business setting, apply behavioral economics to promote better health as well as better financial decisions? Right. Well, you've recently published a study about the this gap between the U.S. and other countries regarding uh, improving health, longevity, and preventing disease. Help us understand the, the gap that exists there. Well, I think the first point we, we try to emphasize is that given the very large investment in the healthcare system in the U.S., um, it's uh, a real problem that the outcomes achieved for that investment are way below those uh, being achieved in many European countries as well as in Australia, Japan, Canada, and so on. And the question is why? Uh, what is it that fundamentally is constraining having the big impact one would expect? So life expectancy, many measures of um, mortality and survival um, are worse in the U.S. in absolute terms than many of those countries. And in fact, over the last two decades, some of them have deteriorated rather than get bet got better. And when you look at it overall, you find that there are two or three key differences. The first is that the investment in prevention and social services in the U.S. is relatively modest compared to many other parts of the world, compared to the investment in high-end treatment and care, which may be, in fact, excessive in this country compared to the rest of the world. And getting that balance right, in other words, dialing up the prevention and health promotion relative to treatment and care, would give it a more effective um, health system. When you think about the workplace specifically then, um, they're, they're, the fact that there are 155 million people in the workplace of America would lend people to believe that there must be an enormous focus on improving the health of, of the workforce, especially given the fact that in the US, unlike so many other countries, there is a strong role for employers and corporations that's been built in for many decades. And yet the opposite is true. Um, if you look at the National Institutes of Health budget, you'd find that less than 1% of the $30 billion focuses on workplace solutions to promote better health. Um, or you'd find that 1% um, of the total amount of money spent on workplace health goes to prevention and health promotion um, in the U.S. 
Some companies may be a little bit more, but it's never beyond the range of 3 or 4%. Wow. Um, and again, one asks the question, how has that happened? And I believe that part of the reason is that for decades and decades and decades, there's been this continued belief that breakthrough cures and treatment um, are the way forward to promote the health of populations, where, and which is a very popularist message and one that turns people on in terms of donating to good causes and supporting the NIH. But the reality is that most things don't require breakthrough cures. They require more mundane, steady, slow, incremental improvements in prevention, health promotion, and we know that if those get applied, not only do they have a bigger long-term effect, but they're more applicable to reaching all people, whatever their social class, race, class, um, or part of the country that they reside in. So it's been this neglect of prevention that I think has been at its core. What we found in our, in our work um, is that um, the people who really understand this um, actually are the CEOs, many of the leaders in many of the companies. And when you start talking to the CEOs of um, some of the leading U.S. corporations, you find that they understand the value of prevention and health promotion. And when they get behind it, a lot happens. The first thing that happens is that they start building what we refer to as a culture of health. It becomes okay and correct and appropriate to value health independently of its um, impact on the bottom line. Of course, you'd want it to have an impact on the bottom line as well. But that tends to come after the decision to first see the value of health in its own right. And we've been struck by um, whether it's um, CEOs from companies, whether it's J&J or L. Bean or a wide variety of companies across the country. When they start showing leadership, uh, their human resource people, their health teams are able to follow with ease and programs that have an effect start actually flourishing. So one thing you've called for from CEOs or recommended to them is, one, include employee health metrics in addition to their financial metrics when they're reporting to the company so they can keep some spotlight on that and then also step forward and, and share their personal journey and say, look, I don't have it all figured out, but we're in this together. This is, this is important stuff, and, and uh, we need to be focusing on it. Yes, and many people may say, well, it sounds a bit esoteric to try and get health metrics into corporate reporting. But just think about what is currently being reported. The quality of the machinery and plant of a company is required to be reported under the SEC rules because it's material to the bottom line of the company. <laughs> Many companies are reporting on the impact on the environment, water use, um, the use of energy, and so on. And again, under the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, they're reporting on good governance and diversity. All of these things are being demanded by investors because it's not nice to do. It's critical to do because it affects the bottom line. So the big gap we feel is in terms of um, the human component um, of the workforce, the health of employees is a huge driver of productivity, morale, retention. Um, and yet, it's not reported on a regular basis. And where, where it is reported, it tends to focus on occupational health and safety. Now, quite frankly, that is obviously important. But the good news is that it's, we've long passed the era when people lose their limbs at work um, and are exposed at very high levels to asbestos as lead, as they were in a past era. Yet we're still putting that as almost the only focus of our health programs. 
We are saying, and I think many across the country, um, HERO, many academics, the U.S. Preventive Task Force, recognize that the current and the future major issues affecting the health of the workforce are actually cardiovascular disease, cancers, mental health conditions, musculoskeletal disorders. Starting to find some way and reporting on how those are being addressed would direct attention, we believe, to the need to focus on the preventability of these as opposed to simply watching the healthcare costs rise and rise and rise, so much so that in many companies, healthcare bills exceed those of the primary commodities that they use, whether it's coffee at Starbucks or steel in the motor vehicle industry. Well, that's amazing. You mentioned earlier about providing uh, financial incentives to help people make healthier decisions. And that is something that a lot of employers in the U.S. and elsewhere have been experimenting with. But it seems like a lot of times they're taking those steps on faith that if they offer people, uh, if they offer an incentive for people to, let's say, take a, a health screening or to participate in a weight loss program that it will make a difference. Um, they don't necessarily aren't ma- they're not making evidence-based decisions. W- what kind of advice would you give to companies in that area? Yes, I think that one needs to see um, the use of economic incentives as part of an overall solution, not the only means of trying to address it. So for example, let's take tobacco control. Um, We know from uh, Kevin Volp and the University of Pennsylvania's work, who are also one of our academic partners, that when you provide financial incentives in the workplace, they do have an impact. And in fact, they have a bigger impact on long-term cessation than nicotine replacement therapy does. But they tend to have their best impact when other things are in place, smoke-free public places, uh, CEO uh, support uh, for the importance of tobacco-controlled work. So in other words, the environment needs to be right and it needs to be supportive. And then the financial incentives and the messages that go along with it tend to have a chance of having a big enough impact. The other problem we find is that uh, the length of time that one needs to apply incentives may need to be very long. And many companies balk at doing this. Either they'll say, well, it costs too much to do it without looking at the costs of not doing it, which obviously is seen in terms of the healthcare costs, where often there's very little qualms about paying hundreds of millions of dollars on the, on the treatment side, yet they are, um, they're flinching at putting relatively modest amounts into an effective incentive program. So often the size of the incentive is just too small to have any impact. For example, if you look at the food sector, we know from our South African work discounting healthier foods um, between 15 and 20% results in a meaningful change in diets towards healthy foods. If you give a discount of 2 or 3%, there'll be virtually no change. Um, so again, the dose of the incentive and the way it's messaged and the way it's supported matters. Within our own program, we've got the additional um, advantage that not only does it happen over a long period of time, but we're interested in how your overall health status is improving over that time period. And as your health status improves, you have access to a wider range of rewards, which include, in some settings, discounts on commercial air flights. In other settings, access to a, an Amazon-type shopping mall with large discounts. 
all of those go in the same direction. So it's not just the incentive to quit smoking or the incentive to get a reduction on the gym. It's how that plays out in terms of your health status. And that ultimately leads you to open the door to a wider range of rewards that maintains you in the system over the long term. Dr. Yak, where can people find out more about you and about your work at the Vitality Institute and get some more of these kind of nuggets of helpful information? Well, we would strongly suggest the first portal is actually to our Vitality Institute website. And if you just type in Vitality Institute, um, you'll find um, the details. Uh, We are very responsive. We also are very interested in uh, um, staying current with some of the, the complexity of what is happening in the prevention world. So we see every day that there's a story to actually help people along, whether it was the measles vaccination debacle over the last couple of weeks, or how do you even think about Ebola? Or what do you do now that the dietary guidelines are changing? Or what do you do about these personalized devices? Some of these are not easy issues. And what we try to do is discern the science from some of the mythology out there. And um, we'd be keen to engage with you as well as link you into direct programs um, as appropriate. Excellent. And I can offer my two cents that uh, the blog on the Vitality Institute website is very helpful uh, and very timely in sorting through a lot of those issues that come up. Well, Dr. Derek Yock from the Vitality Institute, thanks for joining us on Workforce Health Engagement. Thank you. Huge pleasure. All right, Engagers, just to wrap up this episode, today we talked about three components of behavioral economics, specifically components that help employees take healthier actions despite everyone's irrational but natural inclination to choose short-term gratification, even if it has negative long-term consequences. The three components of behavioral economics that we talked about today with Dr. Yak are, number one, financial incentives, such as discounts, lotteries, and rewards, and so forth. Number two, choice architecture, especially a healthy default if no choice is taken. And number three, tools to make helpful choices easier than unhealthy choices. Now, in our show notes uh, for this episode, we'll provide the links that Dr. Yak mentioned, as well as uh, including uh, links to a couple books that um, Dr. Yak mentioned by the leading behavioral economist and economist and food psychologist Brian Wansink. Um, his famous book is Mindless Eating, Why We Eat More Than We Think. But he also recently came out with more of a how-to practical application book called Slim by Design, Mindless Eating Solutions for Everyday Life. And I think a lot of corporate leaders would find that one help, helpful in making some changes around their workplace. You can find those links at engagingleader.com forward slash WHE21, as in Workforce Health Engagement, episode 21. And while you're on the show notes page, you can engage with us by providing your thoughts or questions in the comments section or by clicking the red send voicemail button. Workforce Health Engagement is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications helping mid-sized and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, not only health engagement, but also talent management, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. If you enjoy this series, be sure to check out the leadership podcast, Engaging Leader, 
where my guests and I share ways to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. You can find both Workforce Health Engagement and Engaging Leader podcasts in iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, over the long term, a program of the day won't help you boost employee health, productivity, and your bottom line. Nope. For sustainable success, you need an integrated approach to workforce health engagement.